Amen. Good morning. You can be seated. Welcome. Glad you're here. Glad you're joining us online for those of you who are. Uh, before we get started, though, I want to mention, actually really looking forward to our special guest, very special guest, Pia Bomber, who's going to be here uh, Thursday night. She's actually here now. I don't want to embarrass her. She doesn't want me to embarrass her. Anyway, she's uh, Thursday night. I want to uh, let you know what we're going to do. She's from Switzerland. And uh, we're going to uh, talk, and I'm looking forward to the privilege of discussing with her about the ministry of bringing Jesus to the red light district there in Switzerland. And also the, uh, I don't think we have any idea of the global sex trafficking industry and what's actually taking place all over the world. So she's going to share uh, with us, and I'm going to be talking with her the first 30 minutes from 7 to 7.30. I'm sorry for those of you on YouTube and Facebook, but if you go to the website, <laughs> the first 30 minutes, we're going to discuss the censor-sensitive matters. And then at 7.30, which is usually the time that the worship ends and then the teaching starts, then we'll go ahead and live stream uh, the remainder, which will be the hour from 7.30 to 8.30 uh, on Thursday, both on Facebook and, and YouTube. But if you go to the website again, you'll have the entire hour and a half. Um, I do have to warn you, though, we are going to be discussing some very uh, graphic uh, material of, uh, and very raw, uh, but it needs to be talked about. Uh, so I just want to forewarn you. Uh, ahead of time. Uh, so probably you know, use your discernment as far as uh, coming on Thursday night or even inviting somebody on Thursday night. But we are going to address and, and tackle this very uh, tough topic. Uh, but God, uh, God loves these precious women, these precious children and victims of sex trafficking. And so uh, please be in prayer and pray for Pia. She's on the front lines there. And and uh, she's been a friend of mine. I do have a friend <laughs> for a number of years. And I just had the privilege of meeting her and getting to know her over the years. I've invited her to come. She's our guest. And so we're looking forward to Thursday night. We hope that you'll uh, be able to attend. All right. With that, let's get into the Word, shall we? We're currently going verse by verse through First John. Today we begin in chapter 3. We're going to just take and tackle the first three verses of chapter 3. So what I'll do is ask you to stand if you're able. You can follow along as I read. If not, where you're seated is fine. Beginning in verse 1, the Apostle John writes by the Holy Spirit, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, that's the rapture, we shall be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. 
everyone, verse 3, who has this hope in Him, purifies himself just as He is pure. Ah, let's pray. You would join with me. Father, thank You so much for Your Word and this portion that we have before us this morning here in Your Word. Lord, I thank You for inspiring John to write these words for us all these generations later, well nigh 2,000 years later, for such a time as this, because we need to hear this. We need to be reminded of this, how much You love us. Because the enemy's been hard at work trying to get us to question that love that You have for us. He's throwing all kinds of things at us in these last days, and, and it's getting worse. And so, Lord, this time that we have together in Your Word today represents a recalibration, a, a resetting, a rebooting, a reminding, a, a time of just coming back to the Bible and to Your Word and just to the basics and to Your love for us, Lord. So, Lord, would You just, as only You can, You're always so faithful too, but we just want to ask that You would just speak and comfort and minister and reveal and move in our midst by the Holy Spirit, so that when we leave this place today, there is a dramatic and significant difference between how we were when we came to this place today. Do a great work, Lord. Speak now, Lord. Your servants are listening, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. So if you were to ask me but one of the hardest things for Christians is, my answer would be that of trusting God's love for us when we're hurting. And I word it that way, I say it that way for a reason, because the enemy at those times, by the way, plants these seeds of doubt and disbelief in our minds and our hearts concerning God's love during those times of affliction. You know how it goes, right? And, and Satan's very strategic and also very patient. He, as we're told in Scripture, studies us like a military strategist. And he's waiting for the optimum time to strike. And again, he's very patient. And I, I have these images in my mind's eye of those old World War II photos where the military strategists are hunched over a table looking at a map, strategizing. And they got the pieces on the map, and they're moving them around. And that was the technology of the day. Well, that's what Satan does. He studies strategically the map of our Christian lives. And He's moving the pieces around accordingly, waiting 
optimally for that time to attack. And, w and when is that time? Well, it's like the lion that he's likened to, who just kind of stalks us, watches, studies, waits. Okay, go. Now's the time. Why? Because JD's down. JD's discouraged. JD's hurting. Now's the time. I think about the account in Luke's Gospel. It's kind of intense, really. You know it well. When Jesus was in the wilderness, fasting 40 days, 40 nights, isn't it interesting? Don't you find it curious that Satan would wait until the very end of that 40 days, when Jesus is starving, literally starving to death. He's at his weakest moment. He's at his most vulnerable place. And that's the optimum time to attack. And so he does. And what's the common denominator in the tactic, the strategy of Satan when he does? The common denominator in all three times when he tempts Jesus and attacks Jesus, it's to plant a seed of doubt in Jesus. That's his specialty. That's his MO, if you will. And even more interesting is at the end of the account when Jesus, by the way, not in His divinity, but in His humanity, resisted the devil so that He would flee. And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that He did not defeat Satan and prevail in this attack and temptation in His divinity? What hope would we have? I mean, if it was me, which is why it would never be me, and you either, so don't look at me like you're more spiritual. But if it were me, and I'm God incarnate, and Satan comes and attacks, I would just go, zap! That'd be it. Come on, you'd do the same thing. He could have, you know. Right? He's God. At any moment, the hosts of heaven, the heavenlies are waiting at the ready. He could have done that. He did not do that. What did He do? He used the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And He defeated the enemy. He resisted the enemy. And the enemy then fled. Resist the devil, and he will flee. But this is what is chilling. I almost wish it weren't in our Bibles. It says in Luke's Gospel that after Jesus prevails and is victorious, it's a very interesting detail. It says, Satan left to figure out another time that would be more optimal to attack him again. I didn't want to hear that. What, what, I, what I wish were, were there instead were, that's it. He ain't ever going to be attacked again, because he defeated him, and it's game over. He's a defeated foe, and he's never coming back. No, he went back to the map. 
He's got to regroup. He's got to re-strategize. Now he's got to wait again for the next time when he, she, they are down and struggling and weary and discouraged and hurting. Because that's when we allow the seed of doubt to be met with the supple soil of our minds and hearts, and we allow it to germinate and sprout. We start entertaining it because it, it starts to resonate. Here I am struggling and going through this trial, and I'm hurting and suffering in pain and drinking from a cup of suffering that I've never before drunk from. And you don't think the enemy is going to be right there? Wow. What would you do to make God mad? I don't know what it is you did, but it seems to me like um, you did something wrong, and God ain't too happy with you right about now. That's why you're going through this. And that, that's, that's our, how do they say it, our Achilles heel? Am I saying it right? I don't get out much, so you just got to help me out with these things. That's, that's our, our, our vulnerability, and He knows it. He knows that when we're low and down and weary and hurting and struggling and in pain and suffering, that's the best time to start planting those seeds of doubt. What, what is He planting seeds of doubt about? The love of God. the love of God. If God, you've heard this, if God were so loving, why is He allowing this to happen to you? Question mark. This is the age-old debate, isn't it? How can a God of love be a God of love when there's so much suffering and evil in the world. How do you answer that? I'm not going to give you the test answer, so don't look at me like that. First of all, it's a fallen world, and the devil is the father of this world. Jesus came and purchased back the title deed to this world, but it's not going to be implemented until after the second coming, as recorded and prophesied in the book of Revelation. In fact, you want to talk about an intense, chilling, breathtaking passage of Scripture in the Bible? There's weeping in heaven. Who's worthy to open the scroll? That's the title deed to the earth, to this world. And there's weeping and wailing in heaven until Jesus comes forth and says, I am worthy. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. So the simple answer is, is that this is not God's world, that the devil is the father of this world. And 
He's the source of all the evil in this world. Well, but wait a minute, it's, it's still, I'm doing the very thing I have in my notes I said I wasn't going to do. I, I just read my, my notes. Please know I have no intentions of presenting a theological dissertation. Rather, I simply want to talk with you about our tender, loving Heavenly Father. But I still think I want to provide you a theological dissertation on this. <laughs> How about I do this? The devil is God's devil. What do you mean? He's a created being. He's not God's opposite. He's not God's equal. He's God's devil, and the devil can do nothing unless God allows the devil to do anything. And ask Job about that, by the way. And God will never allow the devil He created. He's a created being. God will never allow the devil to do anything unless in the end it's for our good and God's glory. He can't touch a hair on your head. I think God's given the devil way too much permission to touch the hair on my head. Some of you too, guys, you feel my pain, right? So this reconciling of a God of love with a world full of evil is irreconcilable, because the question is wrong. This is the simple answer. You cannot provide a right answer to a wrong question. The right question has to be asked first to get the right answer. That is not the question. Because see, the question, the wrong question is, uh, why do bad things happen to good people? You can't answer that question, because the question is wrong. Let's get the question right first. It's not why does bad things happen to good people, it's why does good things happen to bad people? Because see, last time I checked, we're all bad. We've all sinned. And by the way, you young people, when I say we're all bad, I don't mean you bad, not that bad. <laughs> no, you got to say, you got to qualify it these days. I'll never forget my son years ago comes home from school one day and he goes, well, man, that's sick. I'm like, so who's sick? <laughs> no, it's sick is good now. I thought, Jesus is coming back. If sick is good, Jesus is coming back. I digress. Um, that's the right question, for which there is the right answer. The reason why good things happen to bad people is because God is good. This world is evil. Well, I have another question, and this will be my final uh, presentation in my dissertation concerning this theological debate. <laughs> Why didn't God then, just curious, when Lucifer said, I will ascend my throne above the Most High, and he was cast out of heaven, and took a third of the angels with him, and was cast down to the earth. And why didn't God just start over, say, well, really, you want, it? You want my job? Well, sorry. Boom, zap. There's the zap again. 
because I would have done that. So would you? I will ascend my throne above the Most High. Oh, really? Zappo. <laughs> Anybody else want my job? Nope, I'm good. Well, why didn't God do that? You would think God would say, you know, let's just start over. Here's why. Because God is love. Not God has love. God is love. And He had to let it play out. Because if He did that, think this through with me now. Use that God-given reason, intellect that we all have. Or as your teachers would say, put your thinking cap on. Let's just carry it through. Let's say God just said, oh yeah, Zappo. Everybody else, the whole of heaven would have then served Him out of fear, not love. Did you hear the whispering in heaven if God did that? Did you hear what happened to Lucifer the other day? Man, we better, we better lay low. It would have changed the whole complexion of their relationship with God Almighty, the Most High God. Who's love? That's the question we should be asking. God let it play out, because He's love, and He wants people to want Him. Could you imagine if we were forced? That's why the, the tree was in the garden. Have you asked yourself that question? This will be the last part of the dissertation. <laughs> we'll make this through. Just hang in there. It, if I were God, and you would have done the same thing. So here's Adam and Eve. You create the Garden of Eden. Oh, I can't wait to see. I mean, you, wow. No words, right? I mean, you talk about having a maid in the shade. I would not have put a tree of the knowledge of the good and evil in there. Why did you have to do that? No, I wanted to give them a choice. Because think about it like this. I know this is a horrible illustration, but it's a gift. If you have a better one, let me know. What if there was only one person on this planet that you could choose to be married to? That's not a choice. That's called being forced. What choice do I have? What kind of a loving relationship is that going to be? I hadn't had any choice. This is you or you. That didn't really work as well as I had hoped. So you can eat of all the trees of the garden, but of this one tree thou shalt not eat. Point, I want you to choose me, serve me, because you love me, not because you have to. And that completes my theological dissertation. Can I just turn a corner and talk to you about how much God loves us? Do, do you know how much God loves you? 
You know, it's sad. We live in a day where the word love has been so marred and profaned and cheapened, and it doesn't pack the punch that it should and could, to the degree in which, if I, if I were to say to you by way of illustration, I love you, or, or God loves you, yeah, 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 yeah. I know, God's love. What if I said this? Hey, God likes you. He does? You, you mean He likes me? Yeah. He sent you a friend request on social media. He likes all your posts. Well, maybe not, actually. <laughs> Better be careful there. I want to talk to you about my God, my Baba in heaven, my Father in heaven. You know Him. I want to talk to you about His love for us, even when everything in your life contradicts that notion. In fact, everything in your life right now is such that just the mere mention of God loves you is almost laughable, because if God loved me, why am I hurting so bad? It, it, it's almost, uh, it can be perceived as, as, as cruelty. But here's the truth. Don't listen to that lie, because that comes from the father of lies. Here's the truth. Our Heavenly Father has unfathomable, incomprehensible, and unconditional love for us as His adopted children into the family of God. And Paul writing to the Romans in chapter 8, and I always recommend the entirety of chapter 8 of Romans for anyone that is struggling in this area, because you need to be reminded that there is nothing or no one that can separate you from the love that God has for you, neither height, nor depth, nor principalities, nor powers of darkness, nor any created thing. There's nothing that you can do to make God love you less, nor is there anything you can do to make God love you more. That's what I want to talk with you about today. I know you know who I'm talking about today. I want to share with you three truths, and I emphasize truths, underscore, highlight, bold, italics. Did I miss anything? The word truths, that every one of us, myself included, maybe myself especially, would do well to remember during those times when we're down, discouraged, hurting, in pain. They are in order as follows. First, verse 1, He lavishes His love on us. I, I like that word, lavish. Sounds lavishing. 
He, how great. He almost, I'm getting ahead of myself. It's like John's grasping for words to even begin to describe the love that God has for us. I can't, it's indescribable. It's unfathomable. It's incomprehensible. Paul said it would be criminal to try to even describe what he saw when he, so much so he talked about it in the third person, when he saw what awaits us in heaven. No eye is seen, no ear is heard. We see through a glass dimly, it's blurry. You have no idea. And I see John kind of doing the same thing Paul struggled with. I mean, how do I how do I, and even inspired by the Holy Spirit, how do I communicate this? What word do I use? Lavish. And it's not, it doesn't even come close. That's all I got. How great is the love that He lavishes on us. That's the first one. The second one of verse 2. He's coming back for us. And three, in verse three, He brings purifying hope to us. Well, let's start with this first one that I already started on. Right out of the chute, I mean, you got to know that John, I mean, even again, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is struggling to express the inexpressible. Think of it like this. How would, you, how would you communicate or express or describe to a blind person something of such beauty? Let's just, let's take that through since I opened up that thing, that can. Let's say that you try. Well, it's, well, let's just take, for example, um, I was, yeah, I'm going to use the rainbow because I'm taking it back. They took it. Uh, by the way, that, isn't that interesting that that, that would, and I don't mean to, because God loves the LGBTQ. Jesus died for them. But I, you might want to rethink taking a rainbow that symbolized covenant when God destroyed the earth because of the wickedness of man. I'm just saying. I'm just, and by the way, they perverted it. It's not the same colors. It's different. Anyway, I, I digress again. I have the gift of digression. So. But how, how would you describe a rainbow? Oh, oh man, it's okay. So here's the colors. So, so it's got yellow. What's yellow? Oh, Try oh, it's it's a uh, it's bright. What's bright? Oh, it's uh, cheerful. <laughs> What's cheerful? I'm not, we're, we're not getting very far, are we? Now let's just take this blind person, uh, for whom we've unsuccessfully tried to describe the beauty and splendor of of a rainbow. Let's just say that God heals their blindness, and then they look at that rainbow that you tried to describe to them. Then they look at you and are like, really? That's not even close. 
That's not at all what you described. Well, that's because I tried to describe the indescribable. I tried to express the inexpressible. I mean, how do I talk about how great God's love is, other than saying that God's love is great? How great is it? I mean, it's almost an open-ended question. So great is this love for us. And then this word lavish, can we talk about this word? I, I love this word. You, you've probably heard me say this before. I'm going to say it again. I hope you don't tire me of saying it. But there's so many words that are not in the vocabulary today. In fact, the vocabulary today is horrifying, if you ask me. I mean, it's just, it's horrible. I mean, the, the sentence structure of, of the younger generation, I'm not trying to be mean here, but it, it, it's like almost a foreign language. The lost art of actually the, the beauty of a, a vocabulary where you use words actually, instead of things, well, like, you know, like, like, uh, you know, like. Like what? I'm not even, I got to be careful, because when you get into pigeon, oh, I shouldn't even said that. I mean, we basically abbreviated everything. We go store. You forgot a few words. I'll stop there before I get stoned to death. I say that in love. <laughs> But one of the words that I miss, that I think is sad, that is not used anymore, is the word smashing. Ah, you got it, didn't you? Oh, you look smashing. You look marvelous. You tell a young person today they look marvelous, would you call me? Am I right? marvelous, and just spectacular, and splendid, and majestic. And I could keep going on and on and on, as you know well I can, but I won't. Well, that's not a word in our vocabulary. Lavished. I lavished my love. What's lavished? Oh, it's one of those words that almost is what it sounds like. It's just, just ravishing, lavishing. That didn't work either, so I'll stop with that one. I mean, the love that our Father has for us is so great. How great? So great that He lavishes us. And not only that, but He calls us children of God. That's how great is His love. Can I uh, bring it into the arena of being an earthly parent as it relates to our love for our children? 
I think about Jesus when He says, you know, I mean, you guys, you know how to give good gifts to your children. I mean, come on, if they, they ask you for a piece of bread, you're not going to give them a rock. It looks like bread. Or a fish, you're going to give them a snake. How much more your Heavenly Father is going to give you the Holy Spirit, if you ask? James says it like this, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above, and there's no changing of His mind, shifting of shadows. He doesn't say, ah, you know, you weren't a good boy this week, so I'm going to take it back. Now, every good and perfect gift, if it's good, it's God. Because God is good. If it's love, it's God, because God is love. But think about how much we love our children. And we love our children. What if I told you that God loves your children more than you ever could? That's how great is His love. If I could just uh, share from the heart personally, in this regard. My children have two fathers. Don't look at me yet like that. <laughs> they have their earthly father and they have their heavenly father. Who do you think loves them more? That was rhetorical. <laughs> you know, I wonder sometimes, uh, and I, and I don't want to be insensitive to those who did not have a good relationship, maybe even an abusive relationship with their earthly father, because it is infinitely more difficult for you to see your heavenly father, because you're viewing your heavenly father through the lens of your unloving earthly father. And I'm sorry for you for those of you that have had that experience. I did not have the best relationship with my father. I wish I had a better relationship with him before he died, especially. But it did take me a while. I've been walking with Jesus for over 40 years now, and it, it took me a number of years before I could start to grasp, because of, I, I was still framing my Heavenly Father through my experience with my earthly father, who was indifferent, uninterested, absent, gone, workaholic. So I get that. But that may explain it, but it doesn't excuse not being able to receive this lavishing love that He has, that He wants to lavish on us. And, and by the way, wh when did the situation in your life, the, the trial in your life, when did that dictate God's love for you? When, when, when is it, or how, how did it get to the point where the difficulty, the pain, the trial, uh, the suffering in your life had the final word on God's love 
for you. Shouldn't it be the other way around? Yeah, but it, it, I'm looking at the circumstances. Well, that's your problem. You're seeing God through the lens of your circumstances, not your circumstances through the lens of your God who loves you more than you could ever imagine. Perfect love. There's an interesting proverb that goes like this. The, the, the desire of every man, woman, child, the, the desire of everyone, which this is going to explain a lot, by the way, is for unfailing love. Unfailing love. Because that's how God wired us. That's how God made us. That's how God created us. So this explains why it is that you see especially these uh, people who you would say are famous. This is why they crash and burn. Nobody was ever created to be worshiped like that. And, and why are their lives like that? Because they're looking for unfailing love. And the only place they're going to find unfailing love is in the arms of our loving Heavenly Father and the person of Jesus Christ. Because no greater love hath any man that he would lay down his life for another. So back to, before we move on to number two, this love that we have as parents for our children. It's imperfect, right? It's incomparable to our Father's perfect and unfailing love. The only love that satiates is an unfailing love. And the only unfailing love we will ever have is from our Heavenly Father. And if the enemy's gotten to you, you make it stop right here and right now. Don't let him do that to you. If God loved you, He wouldn't let this happen to you. He wouldn't allow that to happen to you, if He really loved you. Oh, you don't know Him. You don't know how great is the love that He has for me. Number two, this of course is my favorite topic of all time. He's coming back for us. I mean what John writes here. I mean, actually it could be easily missed at first reading, in the sense that it, it seems too far off in the future to help in the present. Because he talks about when He appears, and, and the way He words it's kind of gnarly. There's another word. You got to say gnarly with a growl. That's a so 80s, whatever. But the way he says it is, uh, we do not know what we will be until He appears. But when He appears, we will know what we will be. We will be like Him when He appears. Wow, talk about sentence structure. Well, wait a minute. John, can, can you bring that down to the lower shelf so I can reach it? understand it, grasp it. Okay, J.D. I'm taking one for the team again, by the way, if you didn't notice. Okay, J.D., I'll make it really simple for you. I'll bring it down to the lower shelf so you can reach it and understand it. 
Um, you have no idea. It's impossible for you to know what it's going to be like, what you're going to be like, until He appears. And then when He appears, oh, <laughs> you'll know. You'll know. We do, we, you cannot know until then. Until when? Until His appearing. What's His appearing? The rapture. You know, I was thinking this last week, especially after last Sunday, uh, something I've just been kind of musing over, and it keeps coming up, especially in my preparation for a prophecy update. Uh, you know, I, 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 I pour over, I hope you know this, I, I pour over everything, I go through everything, I comb through everything, I, I just petition the throne on everything. Just, it, Lord, am I wording this right? Is that how you want me to say what I say? And I even pray, Lord, if I'm planning to say something you don't want me to say, then you need to prompt me so I don't say it. And conversely, if I'm not planning to say something you want me to say, then you need to prompt me. It's really, you don't want to be me. <laughs> you, need to, you need to prompt me so I don't say it, if you don't want me to say it. And then I even take it further and say, Lord, and not only that, if I'm going to say something, will you also prompt me to say what you want me to say, how you want me to say it? Now you understand why your pastor is the way he is, right? So I was musing over and just pouring over and combing over this, this one particular point I was making in, in, in my notes for an update. And it was, uh, of course, concerning the rapture. And, and I, I went back and I reworded it uh, a little stronger, a little more specific. Uh, and I said, no, no, rapture is too generic. I'm going to say instead, pre-tribulation rapture. And here's what happened. It was really interesting. There's like this little voice. I know I've heard this. I know this voice. I, it's not that I'm hearing voices, but <laughs> you know what I mean. It's kind of like, I don't know if I would say it like that. You know, there's a lot of controversy. You don't want to be too controversial. You know, rapture's safer. You know, if you said pre-tribulation rapture, people are going to turn you off. Okay, bye. <laughs> They're going to unfollow you. Well, they shouldn't be following me to begin with. Follow Jesus, so follow me. No, in other words, what I'm trying to say is that there's like this unspoken intimidation when it comes to talking about the sound doctrine of the pre-tribulation rapture. And I, I think we, uh, sadly, have, have shied away and cowered and, and pulled back under the banner of not wanting to be controversial and so dogmatic. Well, John's not doing that. The Word of God doesn't do that. And I'm so glad, because 
what John is saying. You, you're trying to understand this, J.D. I'll make it very simple for you. When you have the rapture, to look, the pre-tribulation rapture to look forward to, it makes whatever you're going through easier to get through. In other words, knowing that when He appears, we shall be like Him and see Him as He is, even though yet future, gives us hope in the present. That's why John's saying that. Okay, so he starts off with, how great is it? He's, he's almost trying unsuccessfully, because you cannot, this side of glory, the finite cannot comprehend the infinite. But John's just wanting us to know, how great is the love the Father has uh, for you? This lavishing love, he, he loves you so much. He's adopted you into His family. He's coming back for you. That's how great is His love for you. And He can't wait too, by the way. Did we talk about this last week? Can I just mention it again? I'm going to. <laughs> you know, in the, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, the affectionately we've re referred to it as the uh, Last Supper account, when they're in the upper room. And we, every, every first Thursday of the month, when we partake together of communion, we read no less than two times where Jesus says that I eagerly, fervently desire, some translations render it, eagerly await for when this will find its fulfillment in my kingdom. You know what he's saying? I can't wait. I'm going to prepare a place for you, now that we're engaged, in my Father's house, a bridal chamber, to celebrate our wedding. And then for a period of seven, and then after we're going to have this huge wedding feast, that alone. Food in heaven? Are you kidding me? So uh, how great is the love that the Father has? He's, Jesus loves us so much, He can't wait to come back and get His bride. He's counting down the days before my wife and I got married. I think I shared this, didn't I? I was such a lavishing romantic. Recorded for two, two years. Another word, never hear today. Young people, don't worry about it. Recorded for two years. I've been married this year for 35 years. I proposed to her in a helicopter. A friend of mine was a pilot. Surprised her, had the ring hidden. She knew something was up. We're in the helicopter. We had to wear the headsets. So, you know, will you marry me? <laughs> Over, you know. And <laughs> And then she starts crying. I'm like, aw. Come to find out, she's terrified of heights. <laughs> she would have said anything to get out of that helicopter and back on the ground. Anyway, just. But I marked on my calendar, literally, I marked the days off on my calendar. I could not wait until the wedding day. That's how much I love her. 
I love her that much, how much more? How much more? Does our bridegroom love us? <laughs> you have no idea. You, you can't know. You'll know. There'll be no question mark when He appears. <laughs> but for now, we do not know. But we have that to look forward to. So here, when the enemy comes along and says, I, I, I think God, yeah, I don't know. I think He unfriended you, actually, if you might want to check. They have an app for that. Um, no. I know it may not seem like it, but no, He loves me. He's coming back for me. He's preparing a place for me. If it were not so, He would not have told me that He goes to prepare a place. And by the way, one last thing, and we're, we'll move on, and we're almost done. There's hope. <laughs> you think about God created the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that in them is in six days, literally, literal, literal days, by the way. Don't make me do a theological dissertation on that. Um, and Jesus has been pre preparing slash creating a place for us for 2,000 years. I'm just saying. <laughs> Wow! What is it going to be like? Well, you're going to have to wait till He appears. Number three, and this really sums it up. He brings purifying hope to us. This is what I will affectionately refer to as the proverbial icing on the cake, as it were, concerning our present hope, promoting and propelling us to purity. I think about the Apostle Paul writing to the church of Corinth, saying, you know, I want to I wanna present you as a pure virgin bride to your bridegroom. There, there's a there's a, a purity that comes vis-a-vis -vis the hope that is ours because of the love of our Heavenly Father. Let me see if I can, I know I run the risk of an oversimplification, but let me see if I can say it like this. Our Heavenly Father's lavishing love on us, coupled with coming back for us, brings a purifying hope to us. Now we affectionately refer to and quote commonly, often Titus 2.13, about our blessed hope. Nothing wrong with that. But there is a misnomer, and I'll try to explain it as best I can. See, when you say hope in our vocabulary, here we go again, this was a vocabulary sermon today, and instruction and lesson, I guess. But it's not like, you know, I sure hope so. I sure hope. That's not, that's, that's not what that is, and that's not what John is saying. 
It's more like this. It's not the blessed hope that I hope. No. It's your only hope. It's your only hope. Uh, there's no hope. Oh, yes, there is. Or how about this? Our only hope is, well, there's hope. It's your only hope. But if you have that hope, what's the impact that it has on your life? Oh, it has a purifying effect on your life. If you have that hope. Example. You uh, know that something is about to happen that you're just really looking forward to. You're, you put all your hope and trust in it. You know it's going to happen. It's, and it's your only hope, by the way. So what kind of an impact, what is the result of having that kind of hope on your life? Oh, uh, you want to prepare. You want to prepare. Can I go back to the example of counting the days down before my wife and I got married? I made a lot of preparations. I literally prepared her a place to live in my father's house. She rented a room <laughs> in, in my father and mother's house, literally. Very biblical concept. Until, because I owned my own home at the time, and, and until we got married. But I was making preparations because I knew that when we got married, I had to clean the house. It had to be, because <laughs> she's coming, she coming in, and she's coming back, and she's going to be here. And, and so I better, I better get my affairs in order. I better clean every nook and cranny of this place and be prepared. And I did. Then after that, I made her do it. Anyway, she, she, that, that's, I got away with that because she's not here. So uh, I, that, that's, not, that's not nice. Scratch that. But no, there was a, I, I was getting everything ready, everything ready. This needs to be taken care of. This needs to be wrapped up. This, this file needs to be closed. That needs to be cleaned up. This needs to be made right. That needs to be straightened up. This needs to be <laughs> replaced. That needs to be removed. No, I won't get too specific, but this was a bachelor pad. I, I mean, for me, it was really cool. When she saw it, she's like, are you, <laughs> are you kidding me? So. I had to get, I had to clean house and get rid of some stuff and get ready and prepare because of that day coming that I had put all my hope in. How much more for us? He who has this hope of that, Man, you want to you want to start getting things ready, right? Maybe there's things in your life that, well, you might think it's cool. It needs to go. Maybe something has taken up residence in your heart that, 
the Lord's been speaking to you about, and you've just been kind of blowing them off. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, it's just a little thing. No, 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 no. I'm coming, and I want you to be ready. And there's some areas in your life that need to be cleaned up and purified, if you have this hope. And never imagine, and we talked about this, didn't expound on it necessarily, but we have prior. In Revelation, I find it very interesting, and I'll end with this, that Jesus would have John write to the Church of Philadelphia, because you've kept my command to endure patiently. In other words, that was a commandment. And you want it to be a command. Why? Because the commands of the Lord are not burdensome, John says. And God will never command us to do anything without also enabling us to do that which He's commanded us to do. He can't, or else He'd be party to our falling and failing and sinning, and that's impossible. So you want it to rise to the level of a command, because it comes packaged with the enabling power of the Holy Spirit in order to obey the command in which you've been commanded. So when it comes to purifying it's not a self-righteousness. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that purifies us from the inside out. The Holy Spirit empowers us. The Holy Spirit purifies us. And our faith is purified. Like, like gold, you know, it has to be subjected to such heat, such intense heat to bring all the impurities to the top. And then the dross is scraped off the top. And the goldsmith knows he has pure gold when he can see his image reflected in that gold. And that's what, and he's got pure gold. That's what God's doing in our lives. Well, let me close this way. I know that, uh, and I'm keenly aware, I've made, been made aware, <laughs> oh boy have I, as of late, that um, when I have the privilege of speaking, as I do behind this pulpit every week, that I am speaking to many people that are hurting in many ways, struggles and deep pain, unspeakable pain. And I want to encourage you in closing because God knows what you're going through in your life right now. Don't ever doubt His love for you. He will see you through. Yes, I know it's hard. Yes, I know the pain is deep. Yes, I know the struggles are great. Yes, I know the situation is impossible. Yes, I know that it doesn't look like there's any way you're going to get through what you're going through, unless you have a God who loves you this much. Well, now you've got hope. We would say it like this, you'll forgive me. You don't know who my daddy is. How are you going to get out of this one? You got yourself into quite a pickle there. Yeah. You don't know who my daddy is. 
We talked about that Thursday night, by the way. Yeah, but you brought it on yourself. Yeah, but you don't know who my daddy is. He still loves me. He'll take me back. He'll take me back. He wants me back. In fact, he, he let it get to this, so I would come back. I want to come back. I, I think, I, nah, last, 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 last. The parable of the prodigal. You know, and we talked about this last week, the first mention of the word love is the father-son relationship between Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22. First time the word love is used in the Bible is in the context of the father's love, love of the father for the son. I think about that parable. And it's unfortunate. In our culture, in our day, we completely miss it. In the Middle East, this, this would be unthinkable. You, you would never see a father, after a son did that, basically all but stole his inheritance early and blew it all on prostitutes and parties. The father would say, if you walk out that door, you ain't ever coming back. That's why the parable of the prodigal is so powerful, because that father not only prayed for his son to come back, he waited and watched for him to come back. I picture him standing in the driveway. Well, nowadays he would just watch in the security cameras. <laughs> Sorry. But what's so, uh, Holy Spirit would help me with this, because you would never see in the Middle East a father run to his son. And in the parable, the father, he gathers up his robe and he's How great is the love the father has. <laughs> and then, then that poor kid, yeah, he, he brought it on himself. He made his bed, and he, he's a lad. No. You know, he, I, I picture him practicing what he's going to say to his dad when he comes back. Dad, I'm sorry. Listen, I, I tell you what, I, I'll just be one of your servants. Just take me back. Servants? Hey, imagine his shock. First he got the father. Imagine how shocked he was. There he is. Hurry. I mean, he got all the servants. Get the best fatted calf. We're going to prepare the biggest feast we've ever had. My son is home. And he gathers his robe, and he runs out, and he gives him a hug, and he welcomes him. And the son's going, what? Where's the riot act? Where's the how dare you, how could you? Where's the you're not welcome back? It's not there. Why? Because of the love that the Father has.
unfailing love will never fail. Unconditional conditions. Yeah, but what did I do? It was so bad. It doesn't matter. I still love you. I love you as much as I did before you did that. Welcome home. To see that in the Middle East, you'll never see it. You'll never see a father in the Middle East running like that. It would be considered shameful and humiliating. But this father did. Who's the father in the parable? It's our loving Heavenly Father. Who's the prodigal? Every single one of us. How great is the Father's love? You'll see. I better stop because smudge my mascara so Capone will come on up. Why don't you stand up? And Loving Heavenly Father, <laughs> Baba, Daddy, Abba, we love you so much. And we thank you so much. Please, Father, I know there are many that just need to know and be reminded of just how much you love us. Because the enemy's had his way with us way too long, getting us to question it, doubt it. Lord, as only you can, like the Father in the parable, waiting and watching for us to return with open arms, running to us. Lord, please. We need that love. We need unfailing love, because we're all the prodigals. So thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.